live from the gleaming streamlined studios of outlawradiousa.com nestled in our secret bunker somewhere in the Los Angeles area. The following program is produced by Magic Matt Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network. Oh, I am the legendary Burl Bear. Over there, Howard Lapidus. Howard Lapidus. Yeah, well done. Well Manager done. to the star. That too. That too. Parentheses. That's close parentheses. He manages more than one star now, we're proud to report. Manages Dr. Dre's headphones, Dr. Drew Pinsky, <laughs> legendary Burl Bear. Who else? Darren Kavanoki, some retired wrestler. Retired Don't forget some hack, that true crime writer. Oh, yeah, some hack, true crime writer. He, he, he covered that. I covered that already. This is, in fact, yes. the number one true crime show in American radio. Yeah, exciting. Yeah, we're thrilled about that. Uh, Mark C.G. Boyer, our fact checker, is here, and he's going to check that fact. (laughs) That fact is easily checkable. And now, ladies and gentlemen, joining us all the way from uh, Louisiana, a man, he and I only agree on two things. We're both geniuses. (laughs) That's exciting. (laughs) Yes, uh, respect for talent is a great equalizer. Chuck Hussmeyer. Well, uh, what about humility? What's that for? No, no, we don't have either one of those things. Okay. I just hey. keep telling him how smart he is and how brilliant. He tells me the same thing, and then we well, argue I, about I everything to, else. I have to shut him up. This is how you do it. Hey, Chuck, how you doing? Pearl, the true crime Pearl. How you doing? <laughs> better and better every day in every way, as Emil Kuwait, the great French psychologist, would say. You have an amazing career. You sit there minding your own business, uh, sitting there on Facebook, solving all the world's problems, and in your spare time, you write screenplays, you write books, uh, people admire you for God knows what. <laughs> we just we just find it amazing. And he rides his bike in his spare time. Yeah, he so do a, I. Yeah, Carl, so do I. It's absolutely uh, astonishing. When uh, when I saw that uh, some of your true crime books were made into movies with budgets about the same as my grocery bill, I was impressed. I hope you made money on those things. Hang on, I'm trying to figure out what that means. <laughs> Me too. I, I I don't know what that means. No, I know. God. <laughs> These were million. You are a genius. Yes, uh, I am a genius. Yeah, we we know that. Uh, yeah, and I'm the Eggman. <laughs> Does that make you? Yeah, yeah, no, Matt's the walrus. Yeah, no, please. wait, the walrus was Paul. Uh, Chuck, uh, the headline on the blog post is that Chuck Hussmeyer, Axeman of New Orleans. I didn't mean to imply that you were the Axeman of New Orleans. Uh, I know that could be a problem with true crime writers. Uh, what about my, my books of Broken Dolls that a parent's worst nightmare and then my name? Yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> this really happens to be accurate in that specific instance. And, and that might not have been a mistake. No, not, not at all. There are also, do people ever think that you're the criminal? Uh, I've yeah. had that, that happen. I, uh, Google once listed me as serial killer Chuck Hussmeyer. <laughs> Hey, oh, hey, hey, Chuck, hey, Chuck, Chuck how, how close do you think the line is between the serial killer, the cop, and then the writer? Uh, well, they, they, there's probably at least one case where they're all all the same, same. person. I, yeah. I haven't yet found that case, but it's not me. It's I mean, in I'm France. Right. It's, so, yes, it's, it's not fine. Joseph Wombo? No, it, no, it was in France. Uh, this is a bizarre one, but I'll, I'll tell her real quick because you'll enjoy it. Uh, there was this fellow who was a murderer. He was in prison in France, and he became famous in prison for his writing ability, for his amazing writing talent. He got out of prison and became a true crime correspondent or journalist for the big national newspaper. There was a serial killer case going on, and he documented it. He wrote about it, and... 
He solved it because it was him. Yeah. That is bizarre. But, uh, you know, the French, they're known for <laughs> They're known for they, that. Yeah. yeah they eat snails. <laughs> and people who want to be French just buy a lot of garlic and snails. So, Chuck, are you based in New Orleans? No. No, okay. If you read, he's anything. in Baton Rouge. He's in Baton Rouge. He's in Baton Rouge. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and that, down here we we don't eat snails, but we do eat alligators. Oh, while they, they're still they moving. <laughs> well, no, we try and cook them first, but that's not absolutely necessary. Do they taste like chicken? It, it, they taste a lot like chicken, exactly. Yeah, now, it's sort of like squirrel. A combination <laughs> between a squirrel and a chicken. <laughs> Matt's throwing my my phone in the pool. I think. Okay. Uh, Poor Matt's under more pressure than an astronaut. Uh, Astronauts aren't in pressure. Under more pressure? How about a deep-sea dive? Yeah, okay. Let's talk about The Axe Man of New Orleans, which is one of your books that has not yet been made into a movie. Is it going to be? Do you have any hints on that? Uh, I have a screenplay already written, and uh, my manager is shopping it around, but so far, because of the cost uh, of a period piece, it, it hasn't gotten oh, a great... Yeah. Great reception with you know it all takes place in 1919, so it's tough. Yeah, that is because then they have to get all the cars and the clothes and the all, all the, the cars. Yeah, yeah, it's hard well, to get actors. They're all dead. Yeah, yeah, all the actors from then are dead, yeah. and it's hard to negotiate with them. Let's talk about the story. Let's talk about the book because the people should buy it by Chuck Husmeyer. And Chuck, I want you to tell us, uh, please, about the Axeman of New Orleans. All right, well, the Axeman was a real killer. He uh, stalked the streets of New Orleans in the early 1900s, attacked uh, approximately 22 people, killed about 11 and wounded another 11, mostly with an axe. And he was dubbed the Axeman by the press at the time. And someone claiming to be him even wrote a letter to the Times-Picayune, the big newspaper in New Orleans, sort of like the Jack the Ripper uh, letter. And, in fact, he he obviously copied the Jack the Ripper letter because he he put the return addresses from hell, just like Jack Jack the Ripper. Chuck, what part of town? Was was it either in the quarter or was he just all over town? Uh, The the quarter and what would now be uptown and the Ninth Ward. Um, He attacked almost exclusively Italian grocery store owners. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. At that time... The prosciutto uh, wasn't good, I guess. At that time, the uh, most corner grocery store owners lived in the store. The the store was the front half of the shotgun house. The residence was the back half. And uh, this killer would break in uh, and, and use the uh, the victim's own axe. He, oh. he never thought it was never documented that he brought his. Own so he axe. wasn't like walking down the street with an axe over his shoulder, like in the Dead no. Man books. No, he had an he axe probably, to grind. He probably figured that would be a little bit Boy. conspicuous, but. Uh, you know, we're talking about uh, 1911 to 1919, and, you know, people chopped their own uh, the heads off their own chickens back then, and they chopped firewood because you had to build a, a wood fire to cook anything. So everybody had an axe. Wow. So he, would, he would always, invariably, he would break in the back, use a chisel or something to uh, knock out a panel in the wooden door, and he would crawl in with the axe, chop the hell out of everybody. Oh, can I say hell? On you the can radio? say any damn thing you want. Right. Okay. Hey, he would, you know, chop the hell out of some people and escape. And, you know, it's uh, it was a real story, and I approached it initially as a true crime. I was going to write a, a nonfiction book, but because of the, uh, you know, record-keeping at the time, there just wasn't enough historical record to write a, a nonfiction book, especially after Katrina, because... 
what records did exist in the courts, uh, of course, the court's office were in the basement, now flooded. So, oh, geez. Uh, you know, my agent said, well, look, why don't you, you know, you have all this information. Why don't you write it as a novel? And I, that's what I ended up doing. Yeah, well, you've had good luck doing uh, novels in the past, so that's still a big stretch for you. You're good at that, so that makes perfect sense. Uh, did you, yeah, um, you, you know, you have a little bit more freedom with a novel. I mean, I, I stuck to the facts about 70%, and uh, I created a detective to kind of tie things together. But all the murders in the book are, are real cases. They're real victims. And, uh, you know, I just I created probably 30% of it with a detective. At now, all. once this guy started whacking people with an axe, I mean, word must have spread about this. Didn't people get uptight and start, like, putting extra precautions or extra, you know, locks on their doors or something? Maybe put the axe oh. in a place that nobody would know where it is. <laughs> yeah. Well, that would, uh, hiding your own axe would be step number one. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, they, people were nervous. I mean, there was, there are dozens and dozens of long articles in the Times-Picayune archives about the axe man. Police had all these theories. Um, they... You know, they would back. This is the day when they would round up the usual suspects. So mm-hmm. whenever there was anybody a murder, with an they, axe, yeah, yeah. They, well, if they would grab everybody uh, on the street and haul them off. Uh, the cops, um, you know, they didn't know, you know, what to do, uh, where to turn on this case because I mean, it was a, a true mystery. You know, it was a real whodunit. They they didn't have. There were no clues. There was no forensic science at all back then. So uh, they just had no idea what to do with this case. So the guy with impunity is pretty much going around chopping up whoever he wants. Yeah. I mean, uh, you, you would think that uh, somebody would have seen something. And a lot of people, they all reported. The problem was there was over-reporting of suspicious characters. Everybody after a murder would go, oh, well, there was a suspicious guy hanging out here. Or we saw a guy down at the store who was suspicious. And, you know, cops are running after them. And this is, a, you know, like I said, an era with no forensics and pretty much zero training for police. Kind so, of, yeah. you know, kind of like New Orleans. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot like, so nothing's changed. Yeah. Was, uh, something, uh, Mark Boyer asked He did something interesting, our, uh, our, our, our suspected uh, killer. Did. Something interesting in his letter and made a request of the citizens citizens of New Orleans. Uh, and then the, he would then, in, as, as if it's Passover, he would bypass. Uh, yeah, what house. was the request he made? Yeah, it was... Uh, he, he said that he was going to kill his next victim on uh, St. Joseph's night, uh, March, uh, it me at the moment, but March maybe 21st, I can't remember. He was going to kill somebody at midnight on that night, and he would pass by any house from which he heard jazz music playing. It was so a request for a the live Times band. Picayune had some fun with that, and, you know, they, they reported... A letter that the Times Picayune got from a bunch of fraternity boys who who invited the axe man to their fraternity house. They told him where the next victim could be found. Uh, you know, basically daring him to come in. And of course, if this was strictly uh, uh, fiction, I would have written it as the axe man came in and chopped them all up. <laughs> yeah, so would I. <laughs> all these spoiled rich brats daring this guy to come in, and uh, you know, but he didn't even the axe man or you know didn't commit any murders that night. So, um, the, lots of uh, partying going on that night. Yeah, lots of jazz. Yeah, there were reportedly there were parties all over town that night, playing jazz music, blaring out of every window. You know, <laughs> Seriously, they, they chucked that. There weren't stereos, but they had phonographs. And they were, Chuck, this is yeah. hard. Look, 
That's New Orleans on a, uh, on Thursday. <laughs> yeah, that's before the, the fun kick. Before? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Thursday night's just a warm-up for the weekend. So it was, uh, yeah, it was, you know, it was a, a normal night in New Orleans. Everybody was playing jazz. And, of course, jazz music was uh, in its infancy back then. It did seem to more than... So yeah. it, it's... It, it's there was a song written about it. Uh, a, a musician in New Orleans wrote a song about the Axeman's jazz. Uh, there've been books. Uh, a friend of mine, Julie Smith, wrote a novel years ago called The Axeman's Jazz. It's a contemporary crime thriller, but it, it mentions the Axeman in it. So it's uh, just recently there was um, American Horror Story, the, the TV show had the Axeman in it as a character, and he was a jazz musician. So I mean, jazz is now permanently tied to the Axeman murders because of that letter. Now, he was targeting uh, Italians who had grocery stores. Did the cops figure this out and go around and ask the Italians, does anybody here know anybody that really hates Italian grocery store owners? <laughs> yeah, they uh, they did get around to that part, but uh, uh, New Orleans at that time had the uh, country's biggest population of Sicilians, and they did not cooperate with the police uh, as a culture. So of course not. Well, they you're were not going to get a lot of cooperation out so, of them. There was a, a huge language barrier. Now, there was a, a pretty well-known Italian detective who was an expert on the mafia, and he was investigating some of the Axeman uh, cases, a guy named John D'Antonio, but, um, you know, he wasn't ever able to solve them. Where was the so where, uh, uh, Chuck, where was the mafia logging in on this thing? Well, that's where the mafia's first city in America was New Orleans. Right. Exactly. Uh, so how, how's you know, the mafia letting some clown, uh, I mean, mean, these Italian, Sicilian. Uh, uh, well, Sicilian, sorry, Sicilian grocery owners are paying the mob their vig, no question. So how, how is it that they're not protected? Well, uh, my main theory in real life and in the novel that, that I tried to explore is that this was connected to the mob and that, that these grocers are probably uh, not paying their protection money. Oh. So the guy, I think I know who the Axeman was in real life, and he is, I don't want to give it away, but he is identified by his real name in the novel. And I, I think there is a, a very good likelihood because... The guy I'm talking, well, I, it's a novel. I hate to give away the end. Let me just say there is a very strong connection to Los Angeles. Angeles, and there was another incident in L.A. Oh. And I just don't want to go too far no, into I that. No, I got you. I got you. But I, I, I did a lot of research. I found all kind of news articles. But the historical record is a little thin. You know, they're, especially after Katrina, a lot, of the, the, a lot of records were stored at the courthouse and the, well, all their records are stored in the basement. Oh, so, goodbye. Know, the police evidence locker, uh, all the guns, dope, everything is stored in the basement of police headquarters. So, you know, that stuff got flooded. Now, uh, there are some records on the accident. It's just there's not enough. I mean, don't you find writing fiction more fun some ways because you don't have to go look stuff up? Yeah, it no, is. Well, yeah. It, Normally it is, like with, with my, but uh, the Axeman has required weeks of research, but it is not nearly as much as doing nonfiction, and, and you're right. I mean, you know, Earl, I mean, nonfiction, it, people, 
the people that cooperate, sometimes they think they're going to get, like, some of the money for the book. Oh, they yeah, wanna, oh, yeah. They want to work themselves into it, and you're like, you know, there's barely enough money for me to Hell, eat they a don't, hamburger. They don't, yeah, they don't give us a research budget, ladies and gentlemen. Let me make that clear to you. We've mentioned this case before, but it is so horrifyingly bizarre, and I read this book. Well, I went into a bookstore, and I saw it. I opened it up, and I started reading it while standing in the bookstore. My daughter had to come get me and say, Dad, either stand there for another few hours and finish reading it or buy the damn thing because we've got to leave the store. It was that gripping. And that's the one about the lovely woman who's the policewoman. Right, Antoinette Frank. Oh, God, what a sweetheart. Tell us about Antoinette Frank, and did they have an intelligence and ethics cap in the police department in order to hire this woman? Well, yeah, this is a case that New Orleans would rather forget about. Let's uh, remind them. Yeah, um, Killer with a Badge is what uh, what the book is called, and it's about Antoinette Frank. She uh, could also be about uh, Drew Peterson. Well, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't it's, resist. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, Antoinette Frank was a uh, a police officer in New Orleans back in the mid '90s, back when uh, New Orleans uh, was number one murder capital of the country. Just all these, there were tons of uh, scandals going on with the police department, and then. Uh, she decides to, to hook up with a uh, little crack-dealing uh, teenager, and they start some kind of crazy relationship, and it ends up with the two of them robbing a Vietnamese restaurant in uh, New Orleans East and gunning down three people in the store, including another New Orleans police officer who was in uniform and uh, working a extra-duty security detail at the restaurant. They murdered him, and they murdered two uh, of the children of the owner, oh my God. and, and wow. two, the other two children hit the cooler, and yeah, it just it's just unbelievable how this woman became a police officer and all the warning signs. I mean, you're talking a psychiatrist, a medical doctor, examiner, and said she is unfit to be a police officer. Well, naturally, they hired her anyway. <laughs> This is what amazes me when I read the book. I mean, when they saw, when the thing comes back, don't hire this woman. She's wacky as a rabbit. Why do they ignore these psychological tests? That's what blows me away. Well, uh, the, the psychiatrist examined her after she flunked her MMPI psychological evaluation and had an exam by a psychologist. Then they referred her to a psychiatrist. And then through this bizarre loophole in the civil service rules, if you failed all that, you could go out and hire your own doctor and get a second opinion. And that's what she did. Well, actually, be a third opinion. You, I guess. $10 for a doctor? Yeah. Uh, Hi, I'm Dr. Burrell. <laughs> you know, she went out and found a, uh, a doctor who was a uh, neurologist, I believe. He wasn't a psychiatrist. <laughs> Naturally. And uh, he... He, he said that she was, uh, she was fine to be a police officer, and he based, I have his report, and he based his, most of his evaluation on her glowing letters of recommendation by oh. you know, local uh, leaders in the community. Well, the problem with the letters of recommendation was that the most important ones were forged. Oh, she wrote wow. them herself and signed other people's names to them or lifted their signatures like she she lifted a judge's signature off of something else and, and you know did her own copy and paste thing back before you know she had to do it on a on a uh, copy machine and obviously nobody checks out her references no of course not and uh, she even had a uh, recommendation by 
the chief of police at the time. <laughs> oh, and, and he oh. he later said, you know, I, that that is my signature, but it was taken from somewhere else. I don't ever sign these things. I don't sign people's recommendations. It's just walking off the street. And, um, I mean, it makes sense because he would be signing a recommendation for somebody who would be working for him. How long was Antoinette Frank on the uh, force? About two years. And she went way, way off the deep end. But, I mean, there were warning signs. There were tons of them. But back to the question of uh, why they hired her anyway, uh, New Orleans had a real shortage of officers back uh, in the mid-'90s. And they they had a requirement that was up in place up until after Katrina that uh, police officers had to live inside the city limits of New Orleans. And a lot of people just didn't want to live inside the city limits. There are a lot of suburban areas right outside the city limits that are cheaper to live, have better schools, and, you know, just not so crime-ridden. So they had trouble recruiting people from those areas. Those guys who are girls who want to be cops would just go work for another department. And they needed her, you know. They needed a body. Boy, I mean, they could have just gone gone to the local, or, you know, the state prison and find people who were getting released, give them a badge. It was, uh, you know, it was about that bad back in the uh, 90s. I mean, they had, uh, she's not the first uh, officer who's been convicted of, uh, in in modern times, of of killing someone. Uh, They had a Right around the same time, two other officers were convicted of murder. Now, they, Antoinette took it a step further and that she killed another cop. You know, she and her boyfriend robbed the restaurant and killed a guy she worked with every day. He was on her, Ronnie Williams was the officer who was murdered, and he was on the same shift as Antoinette Frank. They worked together every day. Gee, yeah, that's, that's mean, really bizarre. And, you know, she made no effort, neither she nor her, uh, her, boyfriend slash nephew slash cousin she called them different things it, it, nobody's really clear on what relation they had but uh a, a little uh scumbag named uh rogers lacaz and uh, neither one of them made any effort to conceal their identity when they went into the restaurant and it's a restaurant where antoinette was well known because she also worked the extra duty security detail at that restaurant so she just they walked in and opened fire they walked in, and she pushed uh, a couple of the Vietnamese kids who worked there into the kitchen. Uh, there was a gunfire from the dining area, which was probably uh, Officer Williams being shot down. He was shot in the head, uh, probably by Rogers Lacaz. And then Antoinette took a gun and shot the two uh, Vietnamese kitchen workers. She put them on their knees, uh, shot them a total of seven times. Both were shot in the head and in the chest. And two more, uh, they're all siblings who worked there. There's four kids, you know, they're like early 20s to late teens. Oh, she's a um, major league psycho. Oh, yeah, I mean, she's without a doubt. And uh, two two others who worked there uh, managed to hide in a walk-in cooler. This place was a restaurant, and it had a small convenience store attached to it. So like a convenience store where you go up with the glass doors where you get soft drinks, they right. hid in that cooler and turned the lights out, and they managed to survive. Antoinette looked for them all over the store, but she didn't go in the cooler, and they managed to survive. This was this was a robbery, I assume. Yeah, they uh, they did steal uh, an unknown amount of money. I've heard about ten thousand uh, dollars in cash. Uh, one of the one of the uh, kids who survived said she put a whole bundle of 
cash inside the microwave as soon as she saw Antoinette pulling up because she had a bad feeling that Antoinette was up to no good because she had been calling the restaurant repeatedly that night. She would come by twice already, and the girl just got a creepy feeling about what Antoinette was up to, so she stuck the money in the microwave, and uh, it was gone. Hmm. Yeah, so she's she's a, a class act. She's on death row here in Louisiana. What a surprise. <laughs> yeah, what, what is a surprise, really, is it's been 15 years, and she's still there, still appealing. I mean, there are some other bizarre things to this case. Uh, after she was convicted of these three homicides, uh, someone found a skeleton, a human skeleton, under her house. Oh, holy and cow. She had, uh, about a year before these, uh, uh, maybe about six months before these rob- this robbery and, and murder happened, she reported her father missing. Uh-oh. He was staying with her, and he's never been seen since. So the smart money is that uh, on that uh, skeleton being that of her father. How much public outcry took place when this happened? When the murders happened, it was it was huge. It was an international story, you know, mainly because of the, the corruption angle and the just uh, you know just horrendous you know saga of uh, a police officer being involved in such a, a crime and. You know, justice was pretty quick with them. They went to trial. They were convicted. Uh, I think it took her jury about half an hour to convict her. And then immediately they almost uh, they sentenced her to death. But uh, the, the bizarre thing about the extra skeleton that was found is that to this day, no one has identified the skeleton. So they won't. They won't do it. They, they have plenty of DNA if they can get from... Antoinette, and everybody knows it's her father. Uh, the skull had a bullet hole in the head. Oh, great! Um, her father's, you know, walked away. She said she's never, he's never been seen since. When I was researching the book, I drove to the town she's from, which is Opelousas, talked to uh, Antoinette's mother, and her mother was telling me that, well, you know, the her husband must have just walked off, uh, you yeah, know, with a bullet in his head. Just, yeah, fifteen years ago, not a not a single person has heard from him since, but. Uh, you know, they, they could test that. They could compare her DNA. I, I think that technically they would need her DNA and some other relative, but I don't think it would be that difficult to... Uh, what possible reason would they have for not doing it? They didn't want to spend the money for another trial. Well, they don't want the bad publicity would be my guess. Uh, this not, bring up. It's not bad enough. I mean, when it yeah. reaches a certain point, Chuck. I mean, yeah, I got to ask, I mean, and you talk about bad, bad publicity, what happened during Katrina with the police? I mean, oh. it sounded like they were just running away. Uh, well, about 250 of them did. Uh, they just took off. Now, I, I, I know a lot of cops down there, and you know, I went down there uh, about it was before they opened up the city again, and I, I met with some of the policemen uh, who I had worked with previously, and they were living out of the precinct. They were, you know, grilling stuff uh, on the lawn of the precinct, the food that they scrounged up. I took, I have a picture of them, how they got the gas for their police cars. They, they went to a gas station. There was no electricity, so they, they dropped a, a hose into the, the huge gas tank that's in the, under the parking lot, and then they rigged a car battery to a pump, and they were able to pump enough gas out and, and fill up their patrol cars. I mean, they were you know working three weeks straight, I believe, two or three weeks straight, no days off, no change of clothes. I mean, nothing. And uh, they're... they're um, you know, they had it pretty rough down there. Now, of course, you got about 200, 250 of them who just took off and abandoned 
their post, and uh, they're they're not well liked by the guys. <laughs> you no, know, I would imagine that wasn't too good for them. I'm their assuming reputation. they never came back. Yeah, that most of them got fired. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was. It doesn't look good on your resume. Yeah, I didn't need a civil service hearing for that one. Yeah, and uh, you know, now there were you know there some cops were not ever able to connect with where they were supposed to be, so they just jumped in with whatever police unit was riding by in a boat and you know worked with them. So I mean, eventually some of these stories got straightened out. Where you know, guys, there was no radio communication. In fact, uh, one of the cops down there told me the only thing that was working was their you know, private Nextel telephones. You know, some of them had Nextels, and that did work, but the police radio system was, was shot. They had no communication with anybody for several days. So were most but, of the cops involved in, in, in rescue operations or in trying to quell any sort of looting or whatever? Well, uh, yeah, I know a guy. He's uh, He was on SWAT. He brought his own fishing boat to work the, when they reported the day before the storm. <laughs> oh, and he knew, you know, what was going to happen. And he knew it was going to flood. It was likely to flood. And so he brought his fishing boat, and he spent about three or four days. And there are a bunch of pictures of him from a Times-Picayune photographer who, who was riding around with him. There, uh, they spent three or four days just loading the boat with people. They would pull up to houses where people were on the roof, load them up as many as they could, and bring them to just the first place dry they could find, the first you know bridge overpass where people were staying or just anywhere where they could bring them, because all you know, eighty percent of the city was underwater. Ooh. So that you're kind of limited on where you can bring them. You know, you can bring them to Superdome or oh, the horror story that was the Superdome, and people were dying yeah. in there. It was unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, it was. Uh, you know, these guys had. You know, they were just trying. The cops were just trying to get the people off of the roofs and get them some food and water. Uh, another friend of mine, um, he brought an axe. Uh, I wrote an, I wrote an article about it for. Uh, crime library and uh i referred to him sort of tongue-in-cheek as the axe man because there's a axe man story in new orleans from a century ago but this guy brought an axe to work and when i asked him why he said because his father had been around during hurricane betsy and a lot of people who weren't prepared for a flood as the water rose in their homes the only thing they could do was go up in the attic and then the water kept coming up and up and a lot of people drown in their attic during Betsy because they couldn't get out of the attic. So this cop brought a, he's a sergeant, and he brought an axe to chop people out of their wow. attics. And wow. he ended up having to do that, you know, a dozen times. You know, he's up on a guy's roof. You know, people are signaling. He told me he was uh, riding by in a boat, and there's a little vent in the gable of, you know, some houses that, that goes into the attic. Yeah. And he saw, like, a little white a, a stick coming out with, like, a little white handkerchief on it and somebody waving. Help so me. Went up. Yeah, so he goes over there and yells at, you know, through the vent, and they're trapped in their attic. So, you know, he gets up on the roof and just chops a hole in the thing and, and drags them out. He said he had to go through the hole, and they had a big, heavy woman who couldn't get in the attic, and she was standing on a dining room table up to, like, her chin. So he had Jesus. to go down into the house, get her, swim her out through the house, through the front door, and put her in a boat. And I saw the... After I wrote the article, I saw that on PBS, so a documentary they had. I said, hey, that's my friend Danny. He's, sure enough, he's got this big heavy woman. He's dragging her uh, out to the boat, you know. I mean, so that's what they did the first several days. And then after that, it was uh, looters. You know, they had looters everywhere. So they uh, had to combat looters. You know, they were getting shot at it. The, the precinct this guy was at, every night somebody in one of the housing projects would open up on him with a rifle. Yeah, it was a total anarchy. 
yeah, it's it's just you know it's kind of hard to believe that in an American city you could have uh, I don't know roughly three weeks, four weeks of complete chaos with really no functioning law and order. I mean, I the thing about the looters that gets me in a flood like that. Well, you got to grab yourself a plasma TV that you can't even plug it in. Yeah, but these yeah. are poor people. Yeah, and they're, they're grabbing you know uh, you know shoes and TVs, radios, things that you know instead of grabbing food. I mean, the cops had to scrounge for food. They, uh, you know, they, uh, on the West Bank, I mean, uh, on the, uh, yeah, the West Bank in Algiers, a friend of mine was over there, and the cops went into the Walmart and grabbed all the food they could, brought it to the precinct, and they armed, they grabbed all the long guns they could, and my friend was carrying around a little notepad. He had the serial numbers to the long guns and who he had passed them out to, you know, what cops, because they were under a lot of gunfire on that precinct. And, you know, so the cops are scrounging food. At least they had the common sense to get things that were not. They got medicine, food, bandages, things like that. You know, a lot of your looters are out there, like you said, getting a TV. What are you going to do with it? <laughs> yeah, you know? There's nothing good on that time of day. Anyway, we got to take his <laughs> 60-second break. We'll be right back with Chuck Hussmeyer on True Crimes Uncensored. There's only one thing worse than children who kill. The mother who made them do it. Mom said kill. The mother, Barbara Opal, promised her 14-year-old daughter a brand-new dirt bike if she and her little friends would murder her employer. I'll tell you one thing. The kid never got the dirt bike. Mom, Mom said, said kill, kill by legendary true crime writer Burl Bear. Available now wherever fine books are sold. From Pinnacle, true crime, Mom said kill. Got Chuck Hussmeyer, New Orleans. Author of Killer with a Badge, and you wrote you wrote an article about uh, the biggest smuggler in the universe. Which one? <laughs> yeah, Barry Seal. What a now, Chuck and I were talking on the phone earlier this week, and, and I'd read this article that we'll talk about in a minute. As I got this is there's a book here. I mean, this is in such an incredible story, and you've pitched this as a book, haven't you, Chuck? Yeah, I've got my agent uh, shopping my nonfiction proposal around uh, right now. So far, we haven't had any takers, which is surprising. Yeah, really surprised me because it's such a... Well, we'll tell our, our loyal listeners and our studio audience and those at home about this guy. <laughs> well, Barry Seal is... Uh, he was from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and by all accounts was just a phenomenal pilot. He had a, a gift for flying. And... He had a very interesting career because he uh, he got a job with uh, TWA, Trans World Airlines, which you know at, at one time was owned by Howard Hughes. Once upon a time, he got he was the youngest uh, captain to fly a seven forty seven. He was an international pilot, and then this is back in the uh, late sixties and early seventies, and then he manages to somehow get himself arrested with a DC ten. Um, ex, a former military plane loaded with 14,000 pounds of high explosives <laughs> headed from Mexico. Oh, to, uh, oh, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I want to hear the alibi for this one. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know the plane was loaded. 14,000 pounds. <laughs> How did he get away with loading all those explosives without getting caught? Well, because he had to have had government help. That's, the, yeah. that's, that's the what key. I was thinking about. Yeah, I mean, I'm a, a former ATF agent, and, and one of our... Uh, areas of jurisdiction is explosives and i'm i'm here to tell you if 
if you're just wandering around on the street looking to buy some illegal explosives, you're not going to find 14,000 pounds. <laughs> no, I would imagine not. usually. All right. So, anyway, Barry gets arrested along with several other guys with this plane load of uh, explosives. He, he told his wife, and I talked to her, and I, he said, look, this is all going to get taken care of. I'm doing this for the government. I'm doing this for the CIA. He was flying it down to Mexico to a group of anti-Castro Cuban refugees. Mm, now, that cost him his job. He did He did get off on well, that. Well, did it cost him his job only because he was caught? Well, pro yeah, probably. But, I mean, the publicity and the, news, you know, the newspaper articles about it, uh, you know, he lost his job at TWA, and then he turned just to straight smuggling. And he became one of the most successful drug smugglers in America. I mean, he was working directly for the Medellin cartel, you know, Pablo Escobar, uh, Jorge Achoa, those guys. Back, uh, he was doing that all the way up through the mid-'80s, from, from the probably sometime in the late-'70s when uh, Achoa and them formed the Medellin cartel up until Barry Seal's assassination in 1986. Was he, he was flying working. light planes? Uh, no, he had a uh, he, he bought big planes. He had wow. uh, a, he had a Lear, he he owned a Learjet. He had a um, now I forget the designation, but he had a big former military twin engine transport plane, a C one twenty three. That's a and big plane. I have a picture of it. I have a picture of it on the in that article on Crime Library. It's, it's and he had it painted camouflaged. I mean, it, it stuck, stuck out like a sore thumb when you're landing an airport. Yeah, I would imagine. You know? I mean, it's a yeah, giant it plane. Like, yeah, I mean, if you know, if, like you see Band of Brothers or something, it's the plane the 82nd and 101st Airborne jumped out of over <laughs> right, Norman. Right. You know, and, and he's got it painted camouflage. <laughs> and, no one uh, can see it, of course. Right. Right. Never yeah, notice it at the airport, right? right. So, <laughs> so he, uh, he's working out of Louisiana in the early 80s. Things are going well from his perspective. He's smuggling... Uh, just absolute 10 tons of cocaine, you know, I mean, just making, he, he estimates he made about $50 million. Now, the thing that separates Barry Seal from your average drug smuggler of the, you know, Miami Vice era is that Barry Seal moved his operation to Mena, Arkansas. And Mena, Arkansas, in the 90s, was ground zero for conspiracy theorists. Why? Well, because... Bill Clinton is was from Arkansas. When he got elected in the 90s, all this press came out that he was connected to all these smugglers who were in Mena, Arkansas. Now, that, you know, I didn't even delve into that in my article. What I did go into is that the CIA was also working out of Mena, Arkansas at the same time. Now, Mena is like an exclamation point on a, a map. I mean, you, <laughs> you you can barely find it even if you're looking for it why the CIA decided that they had to have some of their aircraft serviced. Now, this is what they admit. They, the CIA, I filed Freedom of Information Act request, and they sent me this briefing paper that's declassified, and other people have seen it. I wasn't the first to get it. But uh, they, they admit, well, we were having aircraft serviced over there. And <laughs> It's such know, a why? convenient well, location. It sounds like yeah, another Iran-Contra. Right, it's just it's right by Langley, you know. If, if, unless you got, to, except you have to go by way of you know Memphis and, and then down into Arkansas. So I don't know why they would do it, but yeah, you're right when you say Iran Contra because what happened is Barry Seal was assassinated in 1986, 
He had been caught in Florida in a dope deal. He decided to flip and work for the government. Now, his first overtures to the government were unsuccessful. They told him to go pound sand. He, he was a big-time smuggler, and it wasn't going to be, you know, usually you have to give up somebody bigger. Well, nobody believed there was anybody bigger, so he got stuck with it. Well, he got in his Lear jet, flew to Washington, D.C., went into then-Vice President George Bush's South Florida Drug Task Force office, knocked on the door, introduced himself, and said, by the way, I'm flying for Pablo Escobar. And then, of course, everything changed. Yeah, that's an intro. They put him, they put him to work. He flew down, to, to make a long story short, he flew down to Nicaragua where Escobar and some of the Ochoas were hiding out because they had assassinated a bunch of people in Colombia. Everything was on fire for them in Colombia. So they were hiding out in Panama. They were, then they went to Nicaragua. Well, Barry Seal flew down there and picked up a plane load of cocaine in Nicaragua. He caught Pablo Escobar and a high-ranking Nicaraguan government official on, uh, with a, he caught him with a camera, it wasn't a video. He caught still pictures of them loading, personally loading the cocaine on the plane. Well, he flew the plane back to Miami, and the DEA was ecstatic. Here, here you have Pablo Escobar himself loading the plane, heading for the United States. They're going to get this huge case against the cartel. They have a man right inside. Well, while the DEA is thinking how great this is, somebody at the National Security Council, probably um, Oliver North is what everybody, that's who everybody puts the finger on. Naturally. Leaked the story to the Washington Times, and they came out with a story that said, essentially, the DEA's got a pilot who just flew a plane load of dope. <laughs> what, the hell was Oliver, what the hell was Oliver North thinking? Well, uh, at that time, you have, you know, Reagan's in office. He's, uh, you know, fighting a covert war against the Sandinista communists, the uh, communist government of uh, Nicaragua. Uh, he's supplying the Contras, and they wanted to prove that the communist government of Nicaragua was behind cocaine smuggling in the United States. So they leaked that. Barry Seal's blown. The DEA had an opportunity. They, they, they were going to round up all the Medellin guys, have them meet Barry in another country, and scoop them all up. Mm. That was all blown. And Pablo Escobar <laughs> put a million-dollar contract on Barry Seal. It took a couple months, but eventually uh, he was machine-gunned to death in a parking lot uh, here in Baton Rouge. Boy, it's like, who didn't have a motive to kill him? Right. And his plane, the one I was telling you about, the Camouflage C-123, which he dubbed the Fat Lady, eight months after Barry Seal's dead, the Fat Lady gets shot down over Nicaragua with three Americans on board. Two are killed. The one survivor is a guy named Eugene Hassenfuss. He parachutes out and is captured immediately by the Nicaraguans and paraded all over international news. And that's Barry Seal's plane. It was loaded with weapons and explosives. So how, that, how did that happen? I mean, what a coincidence that is, that Barry Seal's plane, who he's flying out of Mina at the same time the CIA is supposedly getting their aircraft service, he's mm -hmm. flying out of Mina, and the soon, not long after he's dead, his plane is still being used flying out of Mina, and it gets shot down, loaded with weapons. The thing about Barry is, Barry Seal was in all likelihood, I mean, I can't prove this, but there's a lot of circumstantial and direct evidence that, that supports it. Barry Seal was flying guns 
for the government to Nicaragua or to the Contras, to El Salvador, places like that where they had staging areas for the Contras, and then he was flying dope back. Now, whether he was flying dope back with a sort of tacit approval of government, that's uh, would be pure speculation. But he was certainly flying guns down there. Well, somebody, people, somebody sure knew what he was doing. Yeah, I mean, plenty of people have come forward and said, you know, there's a, a state trooper in Arkansas. He said, I flew with Barry Seal. We had pallet loads of M16s, and we landed, kicked them out of the plane to some guys, and we flew back to the United States. Now, everybody who's come out and said things like that has a mysterious smear campaign, uh, you know, hit them almost immediately. So, you know, they're discredited in the, in the press. Somebody will, and I don't know how it happens, although I do know that there was years ago, I think back in the 50s, there was a, a CIA operation that bought journalists off, and they put whatever stories they wanted. I mean, that's well documented. So this they, story is just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, you might find it interesting that next week, as a follow-up to this, we have Freeway Ricky Ross live here in the, uh, in the lounge with us. Right. And you probably know who Freeway Ricky Ross is, uh, and he didn't even know where all of his drugs were coming from. Right. <laughs> all he knows, he says, they, they didn't fly me to Nicaragua. He says, all I know is I got people saying to me, Ricky, we'll give you all the cocaine you want. Right. And then, now, uh, <laughs> you know, you, know it, you couldn't come up with a better scheme to finance a, a weapons and, and supplies to the Contras because they were illegal under the Bowen Amendments. So the government couldn't pay for them. So you have all this cocaine coming into the United States. If you can skim some money off of that, that could finance your covert war. Sure, all this cash. And that's what people allege. That's what this guy Roth and um, Gary Webb, who wrote yeah. Now, Gary, we Gary Webb winds up dead, too, with two shotgun blasts to the head, and they say it's suicide. Right. Right. Now, uh, if I was shooting myself in the head with a shotgun and I missed the first time, I don't think I'm taking a second shot. Yeah, I, I would... I would like to see the uh, the autopsy report on that. I mean, there are certain circumstances I could see if if you know when people say he was hit twice in the head, you know, did it did the first shot penetrate his skull or did he you know he could just rip off a hunk of skin and deflect off? I, I mean, I I'd have to see more, but it certainly sounds suspicious as hell. Suspicious? It, you don't commit suicide with a shotgun and miss. Yeah, I mean, it's just, first you know, of all, <laughs> uh, and and he, he you know he had now that if you. My only problem with that theory or that is that if they were going to kill him, it seems a better time to have killed him before he published the book and the article. They, you know, Dark Alliance he didn't die until after about. they came out. So that's well. First, there was a whole campaign to discredit him. Uh, well, yeah, there um, always is. Big campaign to discredit him. He's taken. He wins the Pulitzer Prize, as you may know. And no, that, actually, I didn't know that. Yeah, well, he wins the Pulitzer Prize for this reporting. On the uh, CIA's connection to the crack cocaine in L.A. and the you know, freeway, freeway Ricky Ross and this whole thing. Wins the Pulitzer Prize. Then there's a campaign to discredit him. Yeah. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the uh, uh, CIA, CIA guys comes out here to L.A. And we're going to have more details on this next week from a semi-witness. And an L.A. cop shows up and argues with the guy from the CIA and says, No, you're full of crap. He says, I was here. I participated. I saw with my own eyes. <laughs> right. <laughs> it was quite a quite a big thing here in L.A. back in those days. Well, this, well it just fosters know, the image of the CIA being involved in all kinds of covert things they shouldn't be doing and are doing, and it just continues and continues from generation to generation. 
Yeah, we go all the way back to the Southeast Asia opium. Well, yeah, you keep going back. It's always the same story or cover stories. And Right. Well, the guy I mentioned, Eugene Hoffenfuss, who was shot down over Nicaragua, well, you know, he lived. He was eventually, he got back to the United States. Well, the CIA, initially, everybody in the government, when that happened in 86, said, well, we have nothing to do with this guy. We're not involved at all. Uh, this guy, Hoffenfuss, starts talking. He says, well, look. I'm working for the CIA. My handler is Max Gomez. Well, Max Gomez is a real guy. Uh, he's a friend of, that's not his real name. It's Felix Rodriguez. He, he's a friend of um, George Bush, the, uh, the elder George Bush. There, if you, you can just Google him and his pictures of him with George Bush. He's a longtime CIA guy. And uh, Oliver North sent him to an uh, airbase in El Salvador to coordinate resupply operations for the Contras. Well, this guy, Hoffenfuss, names him immediately. And the CIA says, we got nothing to do with that. Well, the plane turns out to be registered to Southern Air Transport in Florida. That's who owned the plane. Southern Air Transport was also the company that was contracted to send weapons to the moderate forces, so-called, in Iran as part of a swap for the hostages. That's a pretty so that's strong tie-in. Right. That's, that's, that's how... Iran Contra got kicked off was by the shooting down of this plane in Nicaragua right. loaded with weapons and the exposure of Southern Air Transport as a CIA front company, which the CIA has even admitted now. Yes, that was a front company. Oh, by the way, in Hoffenfuss, he was like forty something when this happened. Before that, he worked for Air America in Southeast Asia. That was part of the whole opium thing. Yeah, so I mean, you know, he, he knew he, he was his job title uh, in the press was called cargo kicker. <laughs> he's, the guy who, he's, he's the guy who pushed the, Cargo the stuff kicker. out of the plane. He wasn't a pilot. And the <laughs> he just pilot kicked, he just kicked, put his foot on the side of the box and booted yeah. it out. Right. And the, the two pilots uh, who were killed were also employees of Southern Air Transport, which is now it's all been exposed as a CIA front operation. So it's, uh, you know, and Barry Seal was tied into all of this. But you mentioned that smear campaign. And that's what happens to this, this L.D. Brown guy. He's a trooper in Arkansas. You know, he says he was with Barry when they went down there and dropped off some guns. There are some other guys who are less credible. But, say, yeah, I was with Barry Seal when we uh, smuggled weapons down to the Contras. I mean, that's what he did for a living. Now, he also brought dope back. Uh, and, every, you know, he doesn't deny that. But it's just, it's, it's such a web. It, it starts, you're familiar with James uh, Elroy's fiction? It's starting to make me think that really that is how the government actually works. If you read a James <laughs> Elroy novel, everything is twisted and it just everything is bad, everything is crooked. You start to look at that and you go, you know what, I think that's actually a history book instead of a novel. Well, yeah, because all the pieces fit. There's, yeah, no, there's I mean, no other explanation. One trillion dollars a year is estimated paid in bribes. <laughs> that's, uh, yeah. That's that surprised me. Now, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. And Don Woldman. Uh, producer Magic Man Allen teasing me about my sources, but as we know, I am a dedicated investigator. With secret sources, I know. <laughs> no, I don't have secret sources. I go to Interpol and, uh, you know, all those, weird, all those strange places. Yeah, how did, what secret source told you that? <laughs> Don's a pretty good investigator. I have my sources. <laughs> well, yes. Yes, I am. I, I am working on a novel uh, based on the infamous Axeman case.
cases uh, in New Orleans that took place. But uh, the Axe Man has required weeks of research, but it is not nearly as much as doing nonfiction. And and you're right. I mean, you know, and you know, as you you know, Earl. I mean, nonfiction it, people. The people that cooperate, sometimes they think they're going to get, like, some of the money for the book. Oh, they yeah, to, oh, yeah. They want to work themselves into it, and you're like, you know, there's barely enough money for me to Hell, eat they a don't, hamburger. They don't, <laughs> yeah, they don't give us a research budget, ladies and gentlemen. Let me make that clear to you. Ladies and gentlemen, I do recommend, if you like reading uh, a cop drama that's gripping from page one, A Killer Like Me is one of those. And, and, and again, taking place in New Orleans, which has got such public interest, it's, it's just a great formula. Yeah, I, I'm... You know, New Orleans continues to be in the news. You know, <laughs> now we, you know, we had Katrina. Now the uh, there are some cops being charged and who pled guilty to a shooting uh, during Katrina, and uh, they're they're in trouble again. Then you got the oil spill right, you know, south of New Orleans. Oh, that's great just, for the economy. Yeah, oh, oh that's uh, that's unbelievable. You know, we've got. Uh, I just found out last night that the place I was going to take my son for our. You know, he's uh, fourteen. We go on our. Uh, our man uh, trip every year to the Mancation. beach, and we're not gonna, we can't go to the beach this year in uh, Gulf, um, Alabama, because of the oil. They, it sounds like it's gonna be the entire beach. Gulf and the entire beaches in the Gulf. Yeah, I can't imagine how much that's gonna cost uh, the local economies and all these beach resort towns in Florida and Alabama and Mississippi. I understand there's uh, some restaurants have already filed uh, suits against BP for destroying their business. I, I hadn't heard that, but it, it, I'm sure it sure makes coming. sense. Yeah, I mean this this is going to uh, destroy the uh, economy. And it was only a few years ago when you had Katrina; the whole Mississippi Gulf Coast got wiped out, New Orleans got wiped out. The year before that, you had I forget what it was, Ivan or some other huge hurricane hit the Florida Panhandle and knocked everything down in all the hotels down in Florida. They just got rebuilt. That was now, like Hurricane Andrew, I think that was. Yeah, now they're going to just be sitting empty. Yeah, but also so, you had those tent cities in Florida, and they're still there, as far as I know. Nothing, really, I yeah. didn't know that. I thought oh, they yeah. were history. No, they, they said, "Oh, put all these people in tent cities till things come back together." Years later, still there. Wow. Yeah, it's it's uh, so this is not, uh, and they're predicting, but of course they're predicting a, a active hurricane season, which just started. But they always predict uh, an active hurricane season since Katrina. Every year they come out and they say we're gonna, it's gonna be very active. Last year, we didn't have one, nothing hit us. Yeah, but they can't yeah. get hurt if they say it's going to be very active. Right, exactly. <laughs> no one warned us. No. Uh, that's, that's exactly what I think they're doing. Even a broken clock, they say, is right twice a day. Yeah. Uh, we, we were Katrina hit. Is there any one of these natural disasters, whether it's Chile or New Orleans or Haiti, some of the first people on the scene is, are the criminals to grab... Grab kids, grab the homeless, whatever. Well, because there's no law and order, as the cliche goes. Right. It's open season. Yeah, I'm not that up on human trafficking, although I've been seeing it more and more. Billions of dollars that are being made through human trafficking. We were talking about the corruption aspect. Is the dollar volume on the human trafficking now rivals drugs and guns in terms of revenue? Well, if you've got something that's that much revenue going through, you know there's got to be... <laughs> <laughs> the corruption factor. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean that kind of stuff doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't work unless you got corrupt officials that you can pay off. I mean, you know, the mafia couldn't be in business without corrupt cops and uh, judges. You wrote a great article on Drew Peterson. Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, I, was, I wrote that for uh, Crime Library. That was uh, that was an interesting case, and still is. I mean, still I, is. 
the yeah, accused. He's, <laughs> he's still going on. You know, I mean, that is one bizarre dude right there. Oh, yeah, I, mean, I remember his yeah. antics on the media. You know, it's it's it's, it's going to be hard for him to. to to beat this. I mean, I, I think they got him. How often you know? do you have a murder victim predicting that she's going to die in an accident? And that's what happened with Catherine Savio. Yeah, I mean, that, that case was botched from the get-go. I mean, they just basically gave him a pass. You know, it's a small community up there of cops, and, you know, I, I can see what happened with that. I mean, it's obvious. You know, they're like, well, surely he didn't kill his wife. I mean, come on. And the last so they, one, Stacy just sort of disappeared. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, you know how like some people wear a watch, and no matter what watch they wear, it stops on their wrist. This guy has the same problem with wives. (laughs) Yeah. Cheap divorce, I guess. You know, we had a guy back in the '80s down here in in Louisiana who, you know, a girlfriend disappeared, uh, a wife died under very mysterious circumstances, and then another wife disappeared. Now he's since died because I I was I was interested in that case to see what happened once I moved back to Baton Rouge. But uh, you know, we had a guy like that here too. But you know, he passed away, fortunately, so nobody else will go missing. But yeah, Drew Peterson is a is a bizarre, bizarre case, and that, that was. And how about the? Uh, I also wrote about uh, a big case, a story about Natalie Holloway, and all of a sudden that's back in the news. Yeah, I guess. Uh, yeah, yeah with, the, the uh, son the, of a bitch is, did the same damn thing down in Chile. Yeah, yeah it runs I mean, off to uh, Peru. Yeah, Vandersloot. Yeah, he uh, when. Boy, women just, uh, I don't know what his defense is. I saw a comment from his defense lawyer. He said, well, there's always rumors going around about him. (laughs) Rumors? uh, How about bodies laying around? Yeah, yeah, how about a dead body in the room? Uh, (laughs) People are bound to talk when that happens. Yeah, how about a 20-hour cab ride to uh, the next country over trying to get away? I mean, come on. And they they got him on video in a casino where he met her. I think he's caught this time. I know a lot of countries that use the sort of Spanish model. I don't think they have juries. I, I'm not sure of this, but yeah. I think I think a lot of them use a three-judge panel, I, which I wish we would go to, but it's quicker. You know, I think he's going to get sunk. I, I don't know that uh, that Chile does that or Peru, wherever it is, does that, but I, I know there are some countries that follow a Spanish model of a panel of judges rather than a jury, and I think he's going to face some serious justice down there. Oh, yeah, they're unamused. And, and he got indicted in Alabama. At the same time. How was that? Uh, he was shaking down the mother of uh, Natalie Holloway. Oh, oh yes. Geez. Right, right, right. He, he shook. He was trying to shake her down for 250 grand to tell her where the remains of her daughter oh, are. Oh, my God. And, and what happened. This now, is like O.J. if I did it. Yeah, it, it <laughs> appears to be. The timing is, is, appears to be coincidental. I mean, you couldn't. This investigation on the uh, Alabama thing has been going on for like six weeks. And uh, he, she, Beth Twitty, I think that's her name, did wire him $15,000, which is what I read in the press, used to finance his trip to oh, South America. Jesus. So now whether she was cooperating the whole time and that was, you know, government money to see what would happen. I, that's I what it was, I understand. Well, uh, you know, bad, she, yeah. she was cooperating and... Uh, yeah, so he's trying to extort money. I mean, what a nut. And he's admitted on tape before with other people that he killed uh, Natalie. Well, he was smoking marijuana. He didn't know what he was doing. Oh, yeah, yeah. right. right. <laughs> well, yeah, sure, right. I mean, that was the defense that was raised. Well, what about the guy up in uh, Everett, Washington, murders everyone in the house of his neighbors, the kids, the wives, everybody, while the husband's off uh, fighting in Iraq. 
murders everyone in the family for no apparent reason. He says, I don't know what happened. I, uh, I'd been drinking, and uh, all of a sudden I'm standing in these people's house with a bloody knife and a bunch of dead bodies. Yeah, I was drunk. That's my excuse. Yeah, we've heard that one before. Hey, Chuck, we're out of yeah. time. Fascinating interview, buddy. We'll have you on All again right, to get into some more of this. I want to remind everybody once again, the book, uh, the new fiction book, A Killer Like Me, comes out in December. It's a hell of a book. Make yeah, this guy writes movie. with a gritty style that's just, you can't stop turning the pages. Yeah, fantastic. Thanks, Chuck. All right, thank you, guys. Yeah. Take care. Great writer, you're right. He does write a fabulous yeah. style. Just a... I leafed through a few of his chapters, you know, online and... Uh, <laughs> I want the books. Yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, it's not often you come across, a, you know, a, a, a law enforcement guy, ATF agent, who also is an award-winning writer. You know, it's a strange combination, but uh, very rewarding. Yeah, he always wanted to be a writer. We never covered that with yeah. him, though. Yeah, next time we have Mom, we'll get into that. Next week, Freeway Ricky Ross uh, in person. Very good sequel. Yeah, that's why I figured we'd set it up this way. And then to Corey Mitchell. Uh, he has a new book, and he hasn't been out on the air promoting it anywhere. We just got a copy of it, Savage Son. So anyway, thanks again for listening. Matt Allen, the Demons of Decadence, on Outlaw Radio. Ooh. Oh, baby, baby, baby. Hey, 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 hey. I think I want to get to know your mind. Why don't you bend over and we'll discuss it.